Father, we just sang about your amazing grace, your unmerited, unfavored, your unmerited, un, un, unworked favor and kindness for us, your people. Lord, who are we? We are sinners who have lived our lives in rebellion against you. And we have not lived perfectly in our hearts to loving you and living for your glory. And yet you've sent your son Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners like us so that now we can say that we are sinners, yes, but sinners saved by grace. We thank you for that. We thank you that we can sing amazing grace because we're astounded by the fact that you would look upon us with love and favor and all of that is found in and through the person of your son Jesus. I pray that we would be reminded of him this morning as we spend time in your word. I pray that you would remove distractions from our minds and hearts activities that will take place later on, that, Father, right now, as you, your word is opened, that you would help our hearts to be teachable, soft, and tender to what you would have to say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 is our text for this morning. We're going away from the Gospel of Mark uh, for two Sundays. We're going to be here in Galatians chapters 5 and 6, just for a couple of Sundays. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Listen to the Word of God. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. A young man <clears throat> interested in becoming a Christian once asked a, a professing Christian the question, I am earnest about forsaking the world and following Christ. And then he asked this question, What is it I must forsake to become a Christian? To which the professing Christian responded, Well... First of all, get rid of all colored clothes. Then, get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Then, stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments because they are of the devil. Don't eat any more white bread. That one really hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> not even Wonder Bread, okay? You cannot, if you're sincere about following Christ, take warm baths anymore or shave your beard. For to shave is to lie against Him who created us and to attempt to improve upon His work. End quote. The quote goes on and on and on and on. And it's kind of a funny little antidote, I understand, and maybe a little bit extreme. I mean, who would say such a thing, right? Unless they've never sat under Bible teaching for crying out loud. But you know, even though it's a funny little antidote, there are many people, beloved, who essentially, in essence, um, define Christianity um, as a rule-based kind of religiosity. Um, and maybe you would never articulate it that way, um, even prior to coming to know Jesus Christ. But how many of us, even as believers, don't unknowingly many times um, diminish Christianity to rule-keeping to moralism, to externalism devoid of heart, to a sort of asceticism. I need to stay away from certain things. And we focus on these external things that we must say no to, all the while not dealing with what's going on in our hearts. How many times in our lives, rather than focusing uh, uh, personally and uh, the lives of other people, focusing their attention on their need to see their sin and their utter hopelessness before God, and then pointing them to the, to the solution to God's provision for their salvation and the forgiveness of their sins as Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. How oftentimes do we not focus them on a type of cultural Christianity? A type of moralistic, externalistic, heartless form of Christianity, we call it. All of us have, been, have fallen prey to such thinking and such mentality. And that's what we've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark. 
We've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark, through the life of our Lord Jesus, and especially how he deals with the religious leaders in Mark chapter 7, the destructive danger of legalism. The destructive danger of legalism. A legalism that, listen, detracts us from Jesus Christ. That diverts our attention away from the infinite worth and all-sufficiency of Christ. That Christ is indeed enough. Amen? He is enough. It's Christ plus nothing in our justification as we're going to see. We've been seeing that legalism robs Jesus and the gospel of His glory, of His all-sufficiency, that He is all that we need. You see, Christianity is more than just some religion. As my mom used to say growing up in her sharing of the gospel with people, I'm not preaching to you religion. I'm telling you about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's about a relationship with God through His Son. Jesus came into the world to live the perfect life He could never live, to die in the place of sinners, to pay for our sins, rise from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that by trusting in Him, we can have a relationship with our Creator through faith in Jesus alone. Amen? That is Christianity. It's about our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, I also realize there's a lot of misunderstanding Surrounding the term legalism. You know, some people in Christian circles may look at another Christian who, who wants to be holy, who wants to be set apart, who wants to be obedient to God's uh, word, and they refer to that person as, that person's a pretty legalistic person. But that's not legalism. A desire to obey from the heart, out of a heart of gratitude and love for what God has done for you, is actually what God wants from us, right? He wants us to be obedient. We're going to see that, especially next week. If you're committed to doing the right thing, to following God's commands, and you're being legalistic, that's not legalism. Or, some people define legalism as, if you tell another person that what they're doing is sin in the Word of God, even if you do it lovingly and graciously from God's Word, that you are being legalistic. Don't put rules on me. God loves me. God forgives me. I'm okay. You shouldn't be putting rules on me. Some people define legalism as you just coming and confronting them on their sin because you want to help them to become more like Jesus. And we know that that is not legalism either. We'll especially see that next week in our pursuit of sanctification and Christ-likeness. And so, with all of these kinds of thoughts in mind, beloved, I just thought it necessary for us to talk about the importance of what it means to be sanctified in Christ. I've titled these two sermons in two parts, Christ-Centered Sanctification. Christ-Centered Sanctification. Because for the honest Christian, you and I will wrestle with this question. I know I did as we were studying through Mark chapter 7. Well, if I'm to reject legalism and to guard myself from legalism, how do I then grow in Jesus Christ? How am I sanctified in Jesus Christ? What does sanctification progressively becoming and growing to be like Jesus involve then? Right? That is our tension as believers and as Christians who love the Lord. There are important questions to be asking ourselves. And so I want us to look at this passage this week and next week and consider this issue of Christ-centered sanctification. Christ-centered sanctification. What we see here in chapter 5 and verse 1 in the verse that I just read is really Paul getting into these latter two chapters of Galatians to talk about Christ-centered living, spirit-empowered type of sanctification. Uh, For four chapters, if you understand the background to the letter of Galatians, for four chapters, Paul has been refuting the teaching of false teachers called Judaizers, whose message is essentially this. It's good that you have Christ... It's good that you have trusted in Jesus. It's good that you've received Him. We're not denying that. But you also need other works in addition to Christ. You need to supplement your Christianity. Supplement your faith with such things like circumcision. With certain aspects of the Mosaic Law, like observing certain feasts and festivals. Certain works, that, certain rituals that they are to follow. And in essence... Paul exposes this in the first four chapters of Galatians as you are robbing Christ of his his sufficiency, that he is enough apart from any works that you could ever do. 
according to the law. It's Christ and Christ alone that saves. None of those other things. It's all the merits of Christ. His work on the cross is the ground and the basis for our justification. You don't add or take anything away from Jesus' person and His work for you in salvation. And He argues for this over and over again. In fact, if you look back with me in chapter 1 and verse 6, notice how adamant Paul is about exposing this sin. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, I am amazed, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him, namely God, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And listen to this, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary, literally other than or more than what we have preached to you, he is to be what? Accursed. Literally rendered to destruction. You think Paul is serious about distorting the gospel of Christ? Verse 9, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. That is anathema, rendered to destruction. And so Paul then goes on to defend his role as a true messenger of the gospel and the purity of the gospel message that he delivered to these Galatian believers at one time. He says, I'm amazed, I'm awestruck that you are being detracted away from Jesus Christ. And so by the time he gets to chapter 5 and verse 1, he begins to talk about what does Christ-centered sanctification looks like. And what I want to call our attention to this morning is this. Neither legalism nor license are Christ-centered sanctification. Listen to me again. Neither legalism nor license to sin are Christ-centered sanctification. You know, as Christians, we're always struggling with one or the other, aren't we? Think about it. On the one hand, we struggle with legalism where... Um, we think that the Christian life becomes about mere rule-keeping, devoid of, my, of dealing with my heart. It's about my performance. It's about my spiritual disciplines. It's about my faithfulness. And we take our eyes, in the process of even doing good things, we take our eyes away from Jesus Christ. And struggle with legalism even as Christians. Remember, he's writing to believers. And on the other hand, we can struggle with license to sin. With an antinomian, no commandments for me, type of mentality, type of mindset, where we turn God's grace into cheap grace, where we live as Christians in secret sin that nobody else can see, or we're very public with it, and we run around heralding, hey, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. Jesus has forgiven me. God loves me. I can do whatever I want. I can live it up. License to sin, right? Cheap grace. Neither legalism nor license Our Christ's sanctification is really the point that Paul is going to make here in Galatians chapter 5. And so this morning, if you're taking notes, if you and I are going to avoid either one of these two destructive sins, I want to call us to give heed to two exhortations, okay? Two exhortations. We're going to look at the first one this morning and the second one next Sunday. This morning, I want to call your attention to this. If you as a believer are going to avoid legalism or license to sin, then you must stand firm in your position in Christ. Stand firm, Christian, in your position in Christ. And you can even put it in parentheses, thus rejecting legalism. Stand firm in your position in Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to know this. You're already on shaky ground. Maybe you're depending upon your your works. Maybe you're trusting in your church attendance. Maybe you're trusting in many other things. What you need to do is you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ first and foremost that you might enter into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But if you're a believer this morning, you've trusted Christ, you continue to trust in Christ by the grace of God, I want to call you to stand firm in your position in Jesus Christ. Christ. Please notice what he says again in chapter 5 and verse 1. Christian, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. This is the, the climax of Paul's argument here. 
in the whole book. This is the mountain peak. He's been working his way up to this mountain peak, the celebratory celebration. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Imagine Paul going up a mountain, and at the top of the mountain, he says to the believers, look, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who you are in the light of who he is, notice he has set you free from sin's penalty and from sin's power. It's celebratory. It's a celebratory declaration of Paul. Look back in chapter 1 and verse 3. He's already alluded to this in the way that he even began his letter about their their freedom in Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this. Who gave himself for our sins, namely Jesus Christ. Why? Why did Christ give himself for our sins? So that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. He says, the reason why Jesus Christ has given himself for us, Christians, is to rescue us from, the, from this evil age, this sin-cursed world. And obviously, delivering us from the power and the penalty of our sin as well, right? Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. When speaking of the false brethren, who even tried to get... To get um, Titus and and Paul to add to Christ by being circumcised by certain works. Notice what he says in chapter 2 and verse 3. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in, listen to this, to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Paul is saying, not even us as leaders, as those who delivered the gospel, who were charged by God to protect this gospel that we delivered to you, not even we subjected ourselves to the bondage of being under the law again. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled the law. So Paul says, not even we did this. So therefore, when he comes to chapter 5 and verse 1, if you notice, he says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. See, we stood firm, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Not even Titus, not even me, Paul, the apostle. Not, we, we did not subject ourselves to this rule-keeping, law-based kind of religiosity. You too, Christians, need to stand firm and not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He says, you are free. Christ has set you free from the law. I want you to notice those two commands. There's a positive command and a negative command in verse 1. The positive command is keep standing firm, he says. Present tense imperative. Continually, habitually, Christian, hold your ground is what he means. Hold to your position that Christ has secured on your behalf. He's done it. It is finished. The work on the cross. Victory is Christ's. You, believer, just need to stand firm in the victory that Christ has secured for you. And then negatively, he says in verse 1, if you notice, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Another present tense command. In other words, continually don't allow yourself to be subjected to. Habitually don't be weighed down with a yoke of slavery. Don't let these people conscience bind you anymore, in other words. You're free in Christ. Now for them, what were these yokes? What were these burdens that they were putting upon them? Well, they were external works. Circumcision, observing certain aspects of the Mosaic law. Notice in chapter 4, he alludes to this in verse 8. Galatians 4, verse 8. However, at that time, when you did not know God, he says, prior to you coming to know Christ, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. In other words, you're in relationship with God. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Listen to what Paul says here. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. And yet later on he expresses his confidence that they are in Christ 
But yet He's warning them very strongly. It's not about those things. If you're in relationship with God and God knows you and He's called you into a beautiful, wonderful relationship through faith in Jesus, it's not about putting your confidence in those external things, Paul says, as a way to merit your salvation before God. Stay away from those things. I mean, Paul is floored by this. Look back in chapter 3 of Galatians and verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? He poses a question to them. When you were converted... And the Spirit of God came to permanently indwell in you. Was it by your meritorious works or was it by faith? Answer, by faith in Christ. And the implication is, why are you now going to live the Christian life differently? You began by faith in Christ alone. That's a gift of God even, the gift of faith. And you continue being sanctified, growing in Jesus by faith in Christ alone. Look at verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? I mean, Paul is, is, is mind-boggling to Paul. That they would understand that it was by faith that they, that they entered into salvation and now they're trying to earn God's favor by their works. Now please understand, beloved. He's writing, exhorting Christians, right? Believers. And if they could fall prey to the sin of legalism in their own life, the same danger exists for us today. Same danger of legalism. Legalism has many subtle faces. Comes in various forms and shapes. At its worst, legalism is evident in a works-based salvation system. Where you actually believe as a person... That what you do on the outside, your good works, your giving, your attendance at a church building, those kinds of things, your outward behavior, all of those things, apart from Christ, actually can make you right with God. That is the classic example, right, of legalism. And Jesus makes his point, even in the Gospel of Mark, as we've been seeing None of those things. Unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God, he says. It doesn't matter how good you look on the outside. If your heart doesn't love Christ, trusting in Christ, you are serving because you want, you love Jesus and you're full of gratitude for Him. If that's not what your heart is about, you're just going through the motions on the outside. Essentially, what he told the religious leaders of his day, you are like whitewashed tombs that look really good on the outside, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And he rejected the religious leaders, right? Works don't save. The standard for you to to be able to uh, uh, meet in order to have a right relationship with God, your Creator, and every single one of us in this room were created by God to live for His glory and to enjoy Him now and forever. But because of our sin, the standard of 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 uh, God's standard for a right relationship with Him is perfection, perfect conformity to the law of God. None of us can do that. Just ask yourself this morning: Have I? perfectly fulfilled the law of God every single day of my life, every single hour, every single minute, every single second of my life. How many of you have done that? If you raise your hand, you're lying right now, right? None of us have. None of us have. And in case you're thinking, well, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, for the most part, maybe God grades on the uh, the curve, right? If I scored 95%, will God accept me? The answer is no, right? James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all of it. All of it. And just ask yourself this question. Think about not just external, externally, but internally. Have you, if God's 
command is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have you, can you honestly say this morning that you have loved God in your heart where nobody else can see perfectly your whole life, every second, every minute, every hour, every day of your life? How many of you have done that? You see the weight of the law upon us? You see the burden of the law? But God says the law is holy and righteous and good, First Timothy 1. Why? Because ultimately, Galatians 3, it's our tutor to lead us to who? To Jesus Christ. Because when I am weighed down with the burden of the law, and I see, wow, I just cannot meet God's perfect standard. I do not love Him every single moment of my life. I am a self-idolatrous person. I put myself before God every single day of my life. I cannot do this. That's exactly the grace of God working in your heart so that you don't just stay guilt-ridden right there, but that you seek the Christ who has provided for the payment of your sins. Amen? It's the function of the law to lead us to Christ. So legalism is evident in this works-based salvation, but there's also a type of cultural legalism that we can be at fault for practicing. A cultural legalism can exist amongst Christians where we subtly begin to think as believers that it's about our performance The things that we do that keeps us in the right with God. That it's about our spiritual disciplines. That it's about our rules that we keep. That it's about our service. All of those things that that keeps me in a right relationship with God. That is cultural legalism right there in the context of the church. And by cultural, I mean an environment an atmosphere of legalism. The type of environment where things like these become like heavy yokes that conscience bind you. Heavy yokes that you use to conscience bind other people. Yokes that weigh us down, that are non-biblical things. Things, beloved, that cause us and drive us to live joyless. No peace being experienced where we live guilt-ridden, constantly banging ourselves on the head for our failures and doing the same thing to others. And I'm not talking here about loving and humbly confronting others on their sin. I'm not talking about coming to others because you, you love them and you want to help them become more and more like Jesus. And you, so you call them to obedience and even to repent of a particular sin in their life that you know is not bringing glory to God or leading them to be more and more like Jesus. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a type of cultural legalism that tends to rob us of the experience of the benefits of our justification before God. See, part of Christianity is an experiential religion that has substance of truth and doctrine, right? But it is a relationship with God. And God wants us in this relationship, by faith in Jesus, to experience peace, joy, gratitude, thanksgiving, love. He wants us to experience those things in light of our secure position before God because of Christ. So stand firm in your position in Christ. If you're not... Chances are somewhere in there, if you're joyless, you don't experience peace, either you are living as a Christian in unrepentant known sin that you're refusing to confess before the Lord, thus you won't experience joy, peace, and those things, even though your position in Christ is secure. Or on the other hand, you need to return to the gospel and be reminded of the fact that God has forgiven you in Christ. It is finished, right? It is finished. You know what part of the problem is with some of us? It is theological. It is the way that we think about God and His work of salvation. I think for many of us, and I know this was a problem for me as a young man, I came to know Christ at the age of about 17, I think, and right away I was getting into everything and I was reading my Bible voraciously, reading all kinds of books and all kinds of things. And then I had other people more mature around me calling me to, telling me, hey, Paul said to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
And for me, that meant reading and getting into books and prayer. All very, very good things, right? That we're called to do. But you know what I began to do as a young Christian? I began to view those things subtly, passively, as the reason why God continued to love me. I lost sight of my justification. See, listen. Sanctification is a process. It is the process of becoming like Jesus. Sanctification is a process. It's continual. It's ongoing. It's progressive. Because practically, from what we can see in one another, we will never be perfect here on this earth. Amen? Sanctification is a process. Process. But pay attention. Justification has to do with our position before God. Our standing before God. That is not based upon us, but upon the merits of Christ. If this is helpful for you, think of justification. It's as easy as ABC. It's as easy as ABC. A, it's an act of God. It's an act of God whereby God alone declares, not makes you initially, but declares you not guilty, but righteous in Jesus Christ. It's a one-time declaration. It is not an ongoing process. It's an act of God alone that is instantaneous one time. Amazing. Think of the law courtroom scene, right? Where a judge definitively, finally declares somebody not innocent, not guilty, definitively. That happens. And then they're free. Except that in salvation for us, the ultimate judge, God, the creator of the universe, the one who has made us to glorify him and enjoy him, says, because you have trusted in my son, not only are you not guilty, but you are righteous in my son. His righteousness is imputed, wrecking to your account. So not only is it an act of God whereby he declares us not guilty, but he declares us righteous in Jesus. Then B... God justifies a sinner on the basis of Christ's perfect life, atoning death, and glorious resurrection. Justification is on the basis of the person and the work of Christ. You cannot do anything to deserve it. You cannot work for it enough or merit it. Justification is a gift of God's grace solely based upon the merits of Christ on the cross and his perfect life, right? And then C, God applies this righteousness to those who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. You must confess Jesus as Lord and Savior by faith alone. And this faith is not just acquiescent to a certain set of facts. It's not intellectual only. It begins there with understanding the truth of Jesus who is God, but then what he did, his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection. Yes, you must understand that, but it implies faith, a wholehearted commitment, a transfer of trust from self and my resources to the person and the work of Christ. That's faith. And we're going to see next week that faith then bears fruit, bears fruit in the Christian life. So when we put our trust in Christ, beloved, God credits, imputes our sin upon Jesus, and in turn credits or imputes Christ's own righteousness to us so that God sees us as righteous as he sees his own son. Now that is good news, isn't it? For the worst of sinners. Because I remember as a young man, even though externally I was a moral guy, I remember what was going on in my heart from as far as I can remember in Mexico City and the contemplations and reflections in my heart. The video kept playing. The video kept playing. Not of others exploiting me, but my exploitation of others. My sinfulness. My hatred of God because of my circumstances. And the video kept playing and the video kept playing. And when I began to look at the justification of God, that it was an act of God on the basis of the person and the work of Christ to those who confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, I thought, what good news is that for the worst of sinners, including Kempis Hernandez? And so if the video keeps playing in your mind of the things that you've not only done externally, 
But the contemplations and reflections of your heart and other things that you have loved more than God at least one second in your life, listen, this is the good news. God is able to justify you based upon the work of Christ if you will confess him as Lord and Savior, right? Confess Christ. Christians are justified. This is our position in Christ. And my concern, beloved, is that so many of us don't celebrate this. Don't live in the light of that. I know that many times I've had to confess to the Lord, Lord, please forgive me for making life about me, for thinking that you love me any less, based upon my performance, please forgive me. Help me to live in the light of what you have done in and through your son already. Help me to celebrate that and help me to be joyful and live with peace so that others can see the way that I live and they can say, man, why do you have that joy in the midst of such difficult circumstances, in the midst of this particular thing or that particular trial? Why do you live that way? Well, let me tell you, it's outside of myself. It's what God has done through Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says, if you will turn with me in Romans 5.1, as he contemplates and exercises or explains the glories of the gospel and being justified by faith. He says this in chapter 5 of Romans verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, listen to this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, we have peace there is present tense. Meaning that presently, that's where we stand. If you're trusting in Jesus, you are at peace with God through Jesus Christ, through whom, through Christ, also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And notice what he says, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Exult there is different than exalt, right? Exalt means to, to elevate, to make much of Christ, but to exalt means to rejoice, to relish, to celebrate the fact that you are at peace with God. Do you do that every day? You wake up in the morning, no matter how you feel, you've had a bad night's sleep, whatever. These days I'm having to go to the bathroom more often than I want to in the middle of the night. You wake up, maybe you had a difficult day the day before, maybe you have some challenges ahead of you. The first thing, beloved, that we ought to do when we look at texts like these is say, Lord, thank you for the fact that you have justified me by faith and that I am at peace with you no matter what happens in life today. That my soul is eternally secure in Jesus. Look at chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, that is through our our human efforts, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to what? To the spirit. He says you're under no condemnation if you're in Christ. If you're in union with Christ, in this vital spiritual union and connection with Jesus, you're under no condemnation. And then look at chapter 8 of Romans. and verse 28. How many times have we read this verse, Romans 8, 28, in the midst of trials and all of that, to be reassured of the fact that God causes all things to work together for those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. We should keep reading. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, meaning Christians, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. Amazing. These indestructible chain links of God's working in our life so that he can, well, we can never lose our salvation. People ask, can you lose your salvation? The answer is definitively no, because it's not in your hands. It never has been from the beginning. It isn't until the, the end, because if it was in our hands, we would lose it every single moment of the day. God holds us in the palm of his hands. Verse 31. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Boy, that's precious, isn't it? And in case you have any doubt, Paul says, for I am convinced I know this beyond the shadow of a doubt. This is the conviction of Paul as a believer. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. I mean, that pretty much covers it all, right? It says, in case there's anything else that I missed, any other created thing, none of those things will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wow. And you say, wow, this morning? Wow. Lord, you are astounding. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Truly, we can say that in light of these texts. You think God loves you in Christ, Christian? He absolutely does. How do you and I know that God loves us despite anything that we do? He gave his son for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You want to look at how much God loves you, Christian? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. The great theologian John Owen said this, contemplating the reality of God's love. He wrote this, Quote, the greatest sorrow and burden you as a Christian can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is to not believe that He loves you in light of His Son's death. End quote. That's good, isn't it? That's good. Beloved, God loves us in Christ. This will never change. Justification is final and definitive because of God who has declared you righteous in Christ. And listen, he will never go back on his word, his justifying work in your life, because his whole character and faithfulness to his promises are at stake. He will never, ever, ever stop loving you in Christ in this lifetime and forever. See how practical this is for our life? The security and the assurance that this brings? This is where it begins for us. If we are going to grow to be like Jesus, we must remember our justification, our position in Christ, and stand firm in that by the grace of God. We must remember this. This is so practical, isn't it? You know, one time when I was talking to somebody about justification on the mission field, an older man walked up to me, and later on, to give him credit, he actually repented of what he said, and, and we, we actually are pretty good friends even to this day. But he actually, in a conference on the gospel, we preached on justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And he actually came up after me and says, you, you're from that seminary in Los Angeles, aren't you? The Master Seminary. That explains why you're like way up here in the clouds talking about things that really don't apply to us. And I said, are you a Christian, sir? says, yes. And he gave me, he shared his testimony. I said, this is so practical. I said, how did you feel yesterday about the way that you lived your life? He said, terrible. He says, my wife is going through some serious trouble. There's this trial going on and all of that. And then my kids are not walking with the Lord and things are going on in the church that are troublesome. And I said, at the end of the day, yesterday, when you laid your head on your pillow, how much did you believe really in your heart that God actually still loves you? He said, I'm not living my life the way that I should. I said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I said, that's sanctification. I said, as far as God and you're standing before God, does he still love you in Christ the same, even if those things are going on in your life, even if there's a lot of trials and a lot of difficulties, does he still love you in Christ? And the answer is a definitive, yes, he does. Look at the cross. Look at what Jesus has done. It is finished. We don't add anything to that. 
Oh, he saw the practical nature of this for his own life. Can I ask you, how often do you stand firm and rest in your position in Christ? That's a pastoral burden for me, for all of us. That's a pastoral burden for my family. That's a pastoral burden for my own heart. How often do you rejoice and celebrate your secure position in Jesus Or are you that person who is constantly living joyless? You're running around doing all kinds of service, but nobody can tell if you actually enjoy what you're doing. And maybe you even foster through your attitude, not even wanting to be this way, but you foster an attitude of just get it done, get it done, get it done, get it done, get it done. But you're very faithful on the outside serving, but joyless. It's drudgery from people's perspective, the way that you serve. It's a burden. So guess what? They run the opposite direction. They don't want to serve the Lord either if it's going to be like that. The doctrine of justification is so practical for us if we remember that God loves us and no matter what struggles and what sins are going on in our life, no matter what difficulties we're experiencing, no matter what trials, we are secure in Christ. Thus, we can serve Him out of gratitude and love for what He's done, not based upon our performance, beloved. So many of us live defeated. Because we focus on ourselves, our performance, even our spiritual disciplines, which are good things. Reading the Word and spending time in prayer and communing with the Lord. Meditation and memorization and reading good books. All of these amazing spiritual disciplines. If they are not for the goal of you drawing close to the Lord and growing in Christ, listen to me from the heart, then there's a problem there. If it's about, I'm doing these spiritual disciplines, all of these things, because I want to make sure that by the end of the night when I put my head on my pillow, God loves me still. So I'm going to read my Bible, otherwise all day long I'm going to feel guilty about that. Listen, ask God to continue to to fan the flame of your affections for Him in the heart, right? If that's where you're at. Lord, give me the heart to practice these spiritual disciplines because I just want to, I love you. I am so full of gratitude for you. I want to be faithful to you, not because it adds anything to my salvation, my justification, but because I want to draw closer to you and be like Jesus, your son. I want to draw close to him to be like him. Faithfulness is required of us, but we don't place our faith in our faithfulness. You get my drift? We don't place our faith in our faithfulness. We place our faith in Christ. The person and the work of Christ. Christ is a supreme object, person of our faith. It's not even about our faith. It's the person and the work of Jesus who is the basis, the object, if you will, of that faith. The Bible continually calls us to put our, our, set our, fix our eyes on Jesus. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Who's there? Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Just look at Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 tells us how to, to run the, the, with endurance the race that is set before us. He's talking about the Christian life, the, using this metaphor of a race. And he says, in this race of the Christian life, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and Christ has sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. Wow. We set our eyes on Jesus who has already accomplished victory on our behalf and we stand firm in the position that he has secured for us already. As justified sinners saved by grace. I'm telling you, I've only been walking with the Lord for 26 years. Many of you have walked with the Lord a lot longer. And I'm almost positive that those of you who are even more mature than me in the faith would say this, Christ-centered sanctification begins with reminding ourselves daily of what God has accomplished in and through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen, mature Christians? That's where it's at. 
Spiritual disciplines, all of those things are necessary and things that we should pursue. We're going to talk about that next week. That we don't just kind of throw up our hands in the air and say, let go and let God then. You know, God is going to just work through me and I can live it up. I can live however I want. Nah, we'll talk about that next week. But it begins, being conformed to the image of Christ begins by beholding the person and the work of Jesus. That's what we're doing in the Gospel of Mark, aren't we? Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why four Gospels, Lord? Because I want you to behold the person and the work of my son, Jesus, and never forget it so that you put your faith in him, be forgiven of your sins, be reconciled to me as you behold him in his saving way. That's why four Gospels. That's what we're doing in the Gospel of Mark. This is why I love reading Jerry Bridges so much. Just passed away, I believe, three or four years ago. Jerry Bridges wrote a great book called The Discipline of Grace. If you have not read Jerry Bridges' book, The Discipline of Grace, you need to do that. It is a great book. And in there, he was the one that really, I think, came up with this idea of preaching the gospel to yourself every day. That when we come to know Jesus... We often think, well, now, now that I've, I've come to know Christ and I'm a believer, now I'm going to grow and I get past this thing about of trusting in him and his work on the cross. He says, don't put the gospel on the shelf. He says, the gospel is for you every day. The gospel is for believers, I mean for non-believers, and the gospel is for believers. Every day we should be preaching the gospel to ourselves if we want to grow in Christ. So Christians, stand firm in your position in Jesus Christ, and thus reject legalism. Amen? Next week, we're going to look at the second exhortation that we need to give heed to if we're going to be growing in Christ by the grace of God. Let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, O Lord, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Lord, that is the cry of every believer. And Father, I pray that that would be the cry of those who do not know you this morning, that they would want to turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus and thus fulfill their purpose for living life, to live life for your glory, their creator, and to enjoy you now and forevermore by faith in Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for the cross of Christ. Thank you for the fact that, Lord, our justification is not based upon anything that we do, our performance, even the good things, spiritual disciplines, these things. Help us not to put our trust in those things, not to put our trust in our faithfulness because that fluctuates and that goes and, and comes and it ebbs and flows. But, Lord, your faithfulness is unchanging. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Thank you for the cross of your Son and his resurrection. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.